Have you ever wondered what it's like to perform an autopsy? Ever wanted to know how accurate your favorite crime drama is? If you're brave enough, join us Inside the Morgue. Hi, I'm Jess. And I'm Alice. We're both autopsy technicians who met at work and bonded over our love of all things forensics and true crime. We wanted to share our inside view of the world surrounding autopsies and crime by taking a deep dive into how crime scene investigation shows portray our everyday work. In this episode, we'll be dissecting Season 3, Episode 12 of CSI titled Got Murder. Welcome to Inside the Morgue. Oh, I'm so excited. Welcome to our first episode. We're so excited. I know. Oh my god. I can't believe we're actually doing this. I told you, like, I loved that we had, like, a fun idea, and it didn't just end at a fun idea. We are like, oh, we're actually going to do it. No, we talked about it, and then a day later, we were like, okay, we're actually doing it. <laughs> we committed. <laughs> we were like, okay, we watched the episode, I took my notes... We're in it. We're in it. We're doing this. All right. Well, we'll just <laughs> jump right into it. This is CSI episode Got Murder. So the episode starts out with a raven scene, and it has a full-on human eye in its mouth. So animal scavenging is uh, a topic in forensics. It does happen, and birds typically will do this. The eyes are considered a delicacy, and the birds will always go for soft tissue areas first. So typical birds that scavenge are ones like crows, hawks, falcons, and in this episode, in this case, ravens. So the eye is brought into the lab for examination and testing. The tech or investigator, whoever he is, it's been so long since I've watched CSI, mm-hmm. he takes vitreous fluid from the eye to submit for toxicology. So, starting off really strong, we have a green flag right away. This is something that we actually do in our morgue. We take vitreous for all of our cases. We collect vitreous fluid because it's isolated from the rest of the body, um, and it resists putrefaction longer than other bodily fluids, and therefore it gives a more accurate read for electrolytes, glucose, and ketones. In the show, they get lab results right away, and the levels come back in a normal range, The only vitreous results that we could get back that quickly is if we did a dipstick test during the autopsy to see what the glucose and ketones levels are, but it takes way longer for full toxicology Mm -hmm. to come back. So then we cut to a landfill scene and the forensics team is looking for a body that belongs to the eye. They find a severed leg and torso missing the right eye. In the heat, they estimate it to be 120 degrees under the trash and... This trash is from the day before, so it had been there for um, probably a minimum of 18 hours. So under this estimation, the body should be way discolored and extremely bloated at this stage of decomposition. My least favorite stage of decomposition is when they're super bloated. Exactly. (laughs) So, yeah, because all of the gases and enzymes are leaking, the body's super bloated. However, this body looks totally normal, like it was a really fresh death. Minus the lacerations and cuts, but that probably came from the bulldozer. 
The body has blunt force trauma, perimortem bruising around the left eye, and the limb removal is really clean and clearly postmortem because there's no hemorrhaging. But we've both worked cases involving industrial accidents, and never has anyone actually been dismembered so cleanly by an industrial equipment, considering it was probably a bulldozer that took her to the landfill. Yeah, I was going to say, I've never seen a bulldozer case per se, but... I, I wouldn't imagine it would be a super clean, like, disarticulation like that. Yeah. Like, something was up. <laughs> yeah. So then, we're back at the morgue, and we do an x-ray from the body showing uh, that the decedent had spine surgery, and there was an implant at the L4-L5 interspace. This is yet another green flag for this episode, as... Um, in real life, we use fluoroscope mm-hmm. to x-ray any Jane Doe or John Doe case that we have to look for any medical devices, because any medical device that would have a serial number that could help us um, better identify whoever it belonged to, because it's an individual serial number. It's not going to be the same as any other serial number. And we don't see the autopsy for this person, but we do see the L4, L5 spine section with the implant that they had wrapped in plastic. And they explain, like I just did, that the implant has serial number. However, the Emmy already had the victim's name. And this is the first red flag for this episode. Oh, red flag. I know, red flag. We were doing so good. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, this information would have taken a few days to gather in real life, not the five minutes that we saw in the show. Um, you also probably would not want to put that spinal section in a plastic, just like they had it, it was like a Ziploc baggie, like something yeah. I would pack my like sandwich in for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> would not want to take that for lunch. Yeah, <laughs> no, definitely not. Uh, so what we do at our uh morgue is we have like a stock jar that we would put it in with any identifying information written on the outside and we probably would have sent out the implant for examination to be performed by whatever company the implant uh was from it would usually have the name of the implant so any like implant or like pacemakers i've seen recently it'll have like the company name and we'll send them out to the company that they belong to also the ME would not be the person who was tasked with finding the decedent's information. So the ME would find the spinal implant itself and give it to the investigators. And the investigators on the case would be the ones responsible for taking any information from the ME and moving forward with the identification process. Also, in this show, it seems like they only have one or two cases a week to focus on. But in real life, in our office, our investigators are working on, like, several cases each a day. It's not like in CSI world. In our office, they would not have the time to just dedicate finding, like, tracking down that individual serial number for their one I'm case. sure our investigators yeah, would love our that. investigators <laughs> would love to just have one or two a week to work on. Jeez, they're always swamped. <laughs> So during their scene investigation, the CSI team performs a luminol test on several trash cans in the area to find any traces of blood. And uh, when luminol glows in one of the trash cans, they immediately say, oh, we found blood. 
Uh, so luminol's reaction is actually a process called chemiluminescence, a.k.a. light produced from a chemical reaction. And while luminol is most popularly known to detect blood, it also detects other oxidizing agents. So unfortunately, this is another red flag for the episode. Um, just because luminol detects something doesn't mean that it is detecting blood. Um, could be anything that oxidizes, which I believe even bleach does. So even if someone was trying to cover up blood, which I know people always see in crime shows, they're using bleach to clean up after the fact, you'd probably be able to pick up bleach with luminol. So we later find out that the body was stored in a freezer before mm-hmm. being dumped in the landfill. So in extremely cold temperatures, the rate of decomposition is decreased, which could explain why the body didn't look as decomp as we usually would see it in such hot conditions. Probably why the cuts were so clean, too. That is true. Moving into the second case of this episode, it starts off with an autopsy on a white male. The pathologist dictated his notes at the beginning of his external examination, which, another green flag for this episode, this is something that most pathologists actually do do. And one of the pathologists that Alice and I work with, he does this for all of his exams. Everything that this doc was saying was super accurate. He talked about body temperature, if rigor was present, if the skull and nose bones were intact by palpation, the color of the eyes, and dentition. And the autopsy starts, and as soon as the autopsy tech starts and does his Y incision, the body starts to bleed where that incision is. So right away, the tech and the doc put pressure on this cut, and the doc injects what I can only imagine to be a round of epi or something straight into the heart, and there's this super intense CGI rendition scene of the heart with the needle going into it. Uh, But first, how often is this happening in their morgue that they immediately knew like what to do without hesitation? I was gonna say he is the medical examiner was just like get my bag as if this and the the tech I'm assuming who is a tech just immediately knew where it was and I was like this doesn't seem like your first rodeo. <laughs> like also there are so many steps that happens before the body is transported to the morgue and then put in the cooler that. Like, wouldn't somebody have noticed the body had a pulse, even if it was uh, yeah, a slight I one? I mean, if it's enough of a pulse for the person to be bleeding, I feel like it would have been detected. But also, I don't work with the living, so <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't comment on their job. Maybe I, I clearly, I'm not an expert, so... <laughs> Now, this has been known to happen in rare cases. Uh, An individual's heart can be so slow due to extremely cold temperatures or atropine given to counteract a drug. And we found a real case of this actually occurring in Venezuela in 2007. His name was Carlos Camijo. He was age 33 and declared dead after a highway accident and was taken to the morgue. The autopsy began in a very similar fashion as to how this CSI episode portrayed it. The Mm -hmm. man started bleeding when the examiners started their incision, and basically they... He woke up and his wife found out he wasn't dead. 
Uh, but you can read more about this article. His, the article is titled Dead Man Wakes Up Under Autopsy Knife from Rudders.com. And this will be linked in our description below. I also just have to say, if this happened to me at work, like if I opened a body bag and the person was alive, I would probably quit my job. I would walk out right then and there. Like, I love my job, but I would for sure walk out. I would probably never come back. I love my job. I would... That might be enough to make me quit if, like, someone was accidentally alive. That's also so traumatizing. It's so traumatizing for everyone involved. I mean, probably especially for the person who was presumed dead and wasn't. But, oh my god. (laughs) I would never be back in the morgue. Which is really funny to think about is that the one thing that would scare me in the morgue is, is a, a living, living person. person. <laughs> is a living person. <laughs> but, but back to real talk, this is so unlikely to happen that I just have to question all of the medical personnel who declared him dead in the first place. Like, for real, somebody should have gotten fired. The blood work came back for this living dead case with an organic poison, and the victim was in respiratory paralysis after receiving uh, the injection in his heart. They don't say exactly what the poison is or what the drug is, just that it's an organic poison. Uh, So the victim is dead for real now, and they do take two of the autopsy. So we cut to the scene of the autopsy tech cutting into what appears to be the stomach, but Honestly, from our perspective, it kind of looked more like a kidney to me. Like the way he was just palming it in his hand, barehanding like it. So, barehanding it. So now, major red flag for the show. This tech had like no PPE. Almost, he had no mask, no hairnet, or face shield while performing this autopsy. So, uh, I just do the people in this morgue have access to PPE? So, as autopsy techs ourselves, we wear scrubs surgical gowns, masks, either just a surgical mask or an N95, depending on the case, face shields, at least three layers of gloves, and a cutting glove on our non-dominant hand. So they're also doing the autopsy in such dark conditions. Why is it that all these shows portray morgues as so dark and spooky and they can't afford lighting? It has to be spooky. It has to have the one flickering light above the body. (laughs) So in our morgue, we like to see what we're cutting into. So uh, every single light is on, which also helps for our photos, which is something they never never seem to do photos. They never show it. I will give them that. Like we see like a two minute autopsy. Autopsies take longer than that. Um, So they're they're showing us the, the gory part. But yeah, I guess... I don't know if they'd show the photographing scenes. Uh, He was also not cutting the organ on a cutting board. He was just barehanding it, which is red flag. That's not how you cut. (laughs) That's just so unsafe to me. Like, I can't imagine just, like, barehanding (laughs) and, like, oh, man. Uh, And red flag number two in this scenario, typically the autopsy tech wouldn't be dissecting the organs this way. So our job involves eviscerating the organs or removing them from the body. So from there, the pathologist, medical examiner, would dissect the organ. And in the show, uh, after he cuts open this stomach that kind of looks more like a kidney. It was definitely a kidney. 
<laughs> a blue gooey substance is poured out of the organ and they say that this is how they knew that the poison was administered orally. So the substance and the gastric fluid would have been collected and sent out for toxicology, not just poured out onto whatever cutting board or drain that they had below them. Um, so they then go on to say that some type of venom was taken up in the body through a gastric ulcer, and that's what the substance is. Because this was a venom and not a poison, the gastric ulcer is important to the cause of death. So this is actually the second green flag in this scene. Uh, because had there not been an open wound, like an ulcer, for the venom to enter, the gastric acid would just break down the peptides of the venom, and it probably would not have killed this person. So this was actually a learning moment for me, because when I was watching the episode, I was like, oh, the venom probably would have just killed him anyway. Why is the ulcer important? So I got a lot of information about venoms versus poison from the Natural History Museum's website, an article called Bite or Be Bitten, What is the Difference Between Poison and Venom by Emily Osterloff. So before reading that article, I just assumed that ingesting a venom would be virtually the same as ingesting a poison. But... Remember, the important difference between poison and venom. If you bite it and you die, it's a poison. If it bites you and you die, it's a venom. So unlike poison, venom needs to directly enter the bloodstream. So ingesting the venom may not have killed this person had they not had an ulcer. However, however, important disclaimer, we do not recommend trying to ingest venom to test this theory. Do not try that at home. Please. No, please don't. We'll be so sad. We'll be so sad if you do that. Please don't let us, please don't let us down. We don't want to hear, we don't want to hear about anyone. Oh no. We don't want to hear like a true crime case. It's like, oh wow, this person listened to a podcast and then decided to drink venom. Although we'd love to talk about you, please don't do that. Please don't. Please don't. (laughs) There are better ways to get on a podcast, I promise. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, there are. So the tox report comes back as snake venom. But wouldn't that have shown up on the blood work? Yeah, like the initial report that they got? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. So unfortunately, also another major red flag. Um, I'm also not an expert on poisons and snake venom, but I'm pretty sure, especially after digestion and like being in the stomach, it would not be a bright blue. Um, it would probably be a dark brown color with, like, a coffee ground texture. Yeah. So, at the end of the episode, they go into the psychology and physiology of pseudopregnancy, which is actually called pseudocyesis. So, I'm going to give this another green flag for the episode because it's not just something that they made up for TV. There's actually cases of this happening around the world. Uh, and one of the mo- probably most historic cases of this occurring is... Uh, from Mary Tudor, or some of you might know her as Bloody Mary. She uh, was Queen of England in the 1550s, and at 38 years old, she, in 1554, the pressure was on for her to have an heir to the throne. Oh my god, I can't imagine being 38 in, like, the 1550s. People had to think you were, like, geriatric at that point. (laughs) We were like, wow, that old lady? (laughs) (laughs) Right? Everyone was really hopeful when she started showing signs of pregnancy in September of that year. Until nine months later, there's no baby. And then in August of 1555, the 11th month of her pregnancy, she comes out of her confined chambers 
and she's thin, obviously sad and humiliated, because why wouldn't mm-hmm. you be? Uh, but it's believed that she suffered from pseudocyesis, a.k.a. phantom pregnancy. So the pressure and the stress of having to have an heir for the throne may have caused her air quote pregnancy. However, it's also believed that she could have had ovarian cancer, which also causes a lack of menstruation, swollen and tender breasts, and body swelling. Uh, If you're interested in learning more about this, I thought this was a super interesting topic. Check out episode one of the Strange and Unusual podcast. We got uh, all of this information from there, as well as an article by Rebecca Larson titled Queen Mary's False Pregnancies, which will be linked below. So, drumroll please, Uh, from our point of view... of Inside the Morgue, uh, we tallied up a total of five green flags and six red flags for this episode of CSI. So while CSI got some things right, uh, in our opinions, this episode does not pass our terms of forensic accuracy. But we do still love this show, and it is still so much fun. I still love a good episode of CSI. I still... I'm... I... I love watching crime dramas, but I feel like I have to watch them alone now, or I have to watch them with you, because otherwise people are just going to think I'm unbearable. Because we're nitpicking every single scene. (laughs) I'm just going to sit there and complain, and I'll sit there and complain, and someone will be like, oh, we can change the channel if you want. I'm like, no, I'm loving this. (laughs) No, I love it. I just don't love what they do. (laughs) And you're the only other person who will get that. (laughs) Well, that is the end of our first episode of Inside the Morgue. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back next week with a brand new dissection. Bye! Bye.